Welcome to Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops and real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shan. This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Police Bank is run by members for its members. That means they'll do more than any other bank to support you and those you care about. As there are no external shareholders, profits are returned to members in the form of competitive interest rates, products and services, along with many of the additional discounts and benefits. What's more, if you're on the New South Wales Police Force payroll, we'll even send you your pay a day earlier than scheduled. One of the many reasons to bank with Police Bank. New South Wales Police Force Marine Area Command must have one of the best headquarters of any squad I've seen so far. Possibly one of the best police stations I've been in ever. Nestled discreetly in the pleasant waters of Balmain, the MAC looks more like an urban rowing club, but appearances are very deceiving in this case. The MAC is one of the state's busiest and most high-tech and specialised squads. Their duties cover everything that includes water, from drug intercepts on the high seas and coastal border protection to dangerous search and rescue operations in inland lakes and rivers. They even have their own detectives. I covered one of the most fascinating cases in the Lost at Sea story. You can find that in series one. That was from quite a few years ago, but the bravery of the Marine Area Command has not changed at all. My guest today is the commanding officer of the MAC, Detective Superintendent Murray Reynolds. He's brought in Sergeant Josh Lyle, a police diver to give us some insight into the recent jobs so you can understand what it's like to serve in the water police. And Murray joins me now. Good morning, Murray. Good morning, Adam. Thanks for that introduction. You summed it up really well. <laughs> it is a very nice police station. I mean, people don't want to leave there when they get into the MAC. Yeah, it is. It's an extraordinary asset that the New South Wales Police has. And it's, you know, the offices upstairs, the mill room, the veranda are not just used by us, but... A lot of our uh, corporate meetings are held there uh, because it is such a special facility. But it also has a very technological edge. Just give us a, a, an idea of the scope of your operations. Yeah, so we've got uh, nine sectors up and down the coast uh, from Tweed Heads, Coffs Harbour, Port Stephens, Newcastle, Broken Bay, Sydney, Botany Bay, Port Kembla, and down at Eden. So there are police stationed at all those locations. So we have our general boating responses. Uh, we have specialist uh, divers. Uh, we have our investigators, our detectives. Um, we also have uh, licensing police because on our harbour, there are lots and lots of licensed charter vessels. And like any other licensed premises, they need to be policed. So we've got specialist licensing police, we've got intelligence police, we've got a capability around search and rescue, we have a responsibility around search and rescue, and uh, some of the technology there is uh, is pretty special. You've got some very special people as well. The level of training and seamanship is incredible. There's a saying in the MAC that when everybody else is coming in, you guys are going out. That's the truth, isn't it? It's simply the case that uh, when the when the weather conditions uh, turn sour and people are, are heading for their mooring or heading for their marina or they're heading upstream, uh, the Marine Area Command are the ones that are going out to help those that are in distress. 
and I would direct listeners to our series one lost at sea series where you can you can see what happened in that case where some mariners were lost there off Evans Head, northern New South Wales, in the most atrocious conditions imaginable. And Paul Craggs in a very small boat, he was the Coffs Harbour water police operative, went out there, and it was only because he was so brave to get out there on the water, he heard the distress call, was able to call the um, aerial support in, and and people's lives were saved. That's lost at sea. How difficult is it to get into the Mac? Initially, what you got, what you got to have is is a bit of a bit of pump. Uh, they do some pretty brave stuff in the Mac, and you've you know that's an attribute that you can't train for. So so there's that base level, but they do a one day assessment, and that involves swimming, uh, being able to lift yourself into a boat, being able to lift a certain uh, body weight up into the boat. And then after that, if they get through that one-day assessment, they do a six-week trial period. And then if they're successful in that six-week trial period and there's assessments all the way through and a vacancy becomes available, uh, they'll be offered a position. The divers in particular... I find amazing. They have this expression, black water, and that's and that's where they are mostly engaged in, in situations where most divers w- would, would fear to be involved. Yeah, they are an incredible bunch. And until you work with them and see their, the work that they do, their, their teamwork, the way they train, their high output, low maintenance, uh, a very, very tight team. And I'll probably give an example. Um, each year they do a 50-metre dive accreditation down in Avon Dam, and they go down there for 10 days in the middle of winter. Uh, they dive the 50 metres. They've got to come out, get across the water, climb up rocks and get into the recompression chamber inside a set time. And they're down there for 10 days in the middle of winter, sleeping in humpies uh, outside in the freezing cold. Their camaraderie is extraordinary and it's because they depend on each other and they trust each other. And they start each morning because there's an expectation around their levels of fitness. They start each morning with a pretty, um, a pretty tough workout and uh, it's nothing fancy. It's, it's all body weight, chin-ups, dips, push-ups, shuttle sprints, just old-fashioned hard work, and they put in every morning to maintain those levels of fitness, and that's how their day begins. A police diver never knows where their day will finish. A job in the Blue Mountains from 2021 gives an insight into their workplace. Yeah, that's a a really tragic uh, story of uh, a group of canyoners uh, up in the Blue Mountains at Mount Wilson, you know, doing some canyoning, and unfortunately, uh, Jennifer... Uh, one of the ladies participating, uh, she got uh, tragically sucked into a whirlpool and got uh, sucked in through a gap and down into an underwater cave system. And the police officer, naturally, Kelly Foster, dived in after her and she suffered a similar fate and sucked in the whirlpool into this underwater cave system. So our divers, the Senior Sergeant Ray Busby, Sergeant Josh Loss uh, and uh, Senior Constables Tim Boardman and uh, Ryan Good, uh, they went up there on the uh, 4th of January uh, 2021 and it was a confronting set of circumstances. So I'm Sergeant Josh Lyle. I've been in the force since 97, so whatever that works out to be. I've been at the uh, diving unit now since uh, did my course in 1999 and commenced in 2000. 
So basically, we started heading towards the Blue Mountains on the day of the incident, but due to uh, hours of darkness, we weren't able to to get into the job until the next day. So we packed based on the information we had. Uh, and we knew, yeah, look, there was talk of a whirlpool. The, whirl, the whirlpool is the, obviously you've got uh, a canyon situation where we estimated two-thirds of this uh, of the river, the Wollongambi River, were entering this whirlpool, this this void in the in the floor of the, the river. It created a whirlpool that uh, when you first appeared at, at the site, it wasn't obviously visible. But if you look closely, there's, there was a whirlpool there. And as you, obviously, as you got closer to it, you say 100% that is, that is there's a suction there. The water flow is, is going down this whirlpool. And unfortunately, that's where uh, Jennifer's passed over on. She was on a lilo at the time. She's come off the lilo and entered the water. She's managed to, to grab hold of one of the girls that was standing near her. Um, held onto a leg for a short time. That uh, girl's yelled out, and uh, and Kelly's done her best at that stage, taken a backpack off and said, "Look, give me a hand." Um, tried to to get some sort of support, but obviously she's moved too close to the to the whirlpool itself, and uh, and has been and sucked into it. Isn't that typical of police officers? Even when off duty, they're the one that steps forward. I'm sure if you were off duty in the same position, you'd do exactly the same as as Kelly. Yeah, and it's one of those things they say to us, look, don't rush into a situation, but she had no choice. That was, she just thought, I'll do my best at this at this time for Jennifer and I, we've got to act now and she acted now and unfortunately, you know, it, it didn't attend, you know, the worst the worst possible outcome for her, for Kelly, but she did her best and, and it, that's just the way it, it turned out on that occasion. You know, as we, we got into the job, we could see, you know, the forces of, of nature, that, that water volume that was coming through there and the hydrostatic pressure and all that sort of thing, they both stood no chance. Josh Lyle, how do you prepare for a job like that? What's in your training that prepares you for that? Well, obviously, uh, we, we're very well trained. We train for, we call it penetration diving. So generally for us, it's into, you know, we've done aircraft uh, upside down or inverted vessels. So sunken vessels, um, obviously a lot of cars that have gone in and trucks, all those sort of things. Haven't done a train, but uh, pretty well everything else we've had to get inside at some stage. So usually we'd use surf-supplied breathing apparatus or SSBA it's called, which is a basically a hose that will, an umbilical we call it, that will supply you with air. There's very little risk with that. On this occasion, uh, due to the walk-in, we walked for several kilometres to get in there. It just wasn't possible to take that sort of equipment in with us. The helicopters couldn't get there due to, to fog uh, and low cloud, so we had to walk all the, all the gear in. So uh, we did it on scuba. We're not cave divers. So the cave divers are set up. Uh, their, their profile, they'll carry sling cylinders or cylinders that reduces their their body size and shape down so they can squeeze through the tight gaps. We, we've got the next best thing, but we just had to make do with the equipment and the resources we had at the time. So what level of danger were you guys facing? The force of that water was the risk. We put one of the other sergeants in, uh, Steve Y, got into the where the whirlpool was with, it, with some safety lines on him, and we were concerned, even with the, the two lines that we had on him, that he was going to be then sucked into the same whirlpool. Basically, we said, look, the risk is too high. He took some, some GoPro footage and said, this is the layout. So it was we, we planned it sequentially. Uh, it was well, we thought out, it was, we problem solved it, and we said, look, you can't go in there. You've just got that force of water. You're going to become the plug. So you don't want to become the plug in, in, in the bath drain, basically. So you're going to be sucked down with it. And you can't 
fight tons and tons of water and hydrostatic pressure. So we decided that we need to find out where the flow is going to see where these, these girls might be trapped. And we put some, some we call it rescue dye, or it's basically plumber's dye, some fluorescent dye down to see where the majority of the water was, was tracking. Um, and then once we established that, we could then move approximately 15, 20 metres downstream. I was able to get into this crevice, squeeze in, and then uh, I could see there was a, a void and progressed up through this void. Initially, with with no dive gear until we ran out of airspace and then realised we needed our full full kit and got in there and moved upstream. And uh, eventually, with the with the dive gear, progressed through, sort of squeezed up and first came across Kelly and we put some lines on her. And the risk was there's branches inside that as well. So if you are sucked down one of these branches, then then you're stuck. So... We wanted to get a line around Kelly. We didn't want her to be unretrievable. So we managed to get her back up against the force of the water slightly and um, lower her down. We then had to uh, stop her from going over the next waterfall. So it was quite slow and steady process getting us all out safely. Obviously, they're both deceased. And the the dignity of, of the dead is so important and their families you can see the stakes in this operation to bring these two girls home is so important. We've got the benefit of, of training, equipment, time to plan what we're going to do. So we make it as safe as possible. There is risk, but we try and mitigate that as much as possible without, you know, our, our risk assessments on the go, if you like. So we keep going, reassessing all the time. What can we do? What we try not to say impossible. How can we work around the issues? And, and on that occasion we did. So, uh, yeah, as I said, we were able to get to Kelly, uh, get her out, and then get back into Jennifer. They're, I've just got to say that the, the buoyancy of their of the girls in their wetsuits and uh, Jennifer with a backpack on that was what made it very difficult for us because they were buoyant inside the the cabin, if you like. Um, so they were quite difficult to retrieve. So that was one of the issues we we had to deal with. And the, the operation ended up going like clockwork. You brought them to the surface. Were there any other hurdles I've missed? No, no. It was just the, the retrieval process for us was, was the, the most difficult. Um, and once once we get them out, then we hand them over to the, the rescue squad on scene and some other police were there and we were able to, to hand them over. And from there, eventually the helicopters were able to get in and you know, take the bodies out. Yeah, your question before was, you know, how, how, how do we process or, or go about it? It's um, at the time of the job, we see them just as the objective of our job. And we don't we try not to uh, humanise the situation too much. So we don't think about the circumstances of them going in other than the for the practicalities of it. We don't think about their families. We don't think about anything. Um, obviously, after the job, you say, she's that? That, that would have been a terrible uh, experience for them. But we try and avoid, we just want to get the job done, get them out as best we can, and then we can have a think about it after that. But uh, the diving unit, each diver would be doing in between 15 and 20 body recovers individually a year. So if we dwell on the human side of it, we, you know, we probably wouldn't be working there. So we just, we see it as that's our task, that's our job, and we get the job done. I'm talking to Sergeant Josh Lyle of the Marine Area Command, one of the most experienced divers in the state. You mentioned 
the amount of body retrievals that you have to do. How do you debrief from all that? There's 14, 14 men and all men at this stage in the in the unit. There's, there's been females in the past in the unit, but at this stage, it's, it's all men. And quite often, you know, we're working all over the state and we'll have a long ride in the truck back and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just debrief amongst the team. And obviously, we've all got uh, very understanding partners at home, so we'll we'll speak with our partners. And there's obviously the police support. You know, Mr. Reynolds is a great supporter of us, and he'll come and have a chat every time. And and obviously, you've got to look the police services that they offer. But it is it can be tough, and there's there's different jobs that seem to get you in at different times. And um, yeah, like like I said, we've we've all got our own sort of ways of of dealing with it. Yeah, but you manage to deal with this. This is the, these things don't debilitate you, but they but they show you, I guess, moments where you where you need to take some assistance or you need to maybe talk to your partner or something. And there, there's a there's plenty of outlets for this because while these experiences stay with you, you're still highly functional, getting the job for done. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we we keep turning up, and you know there there is a danger of I think you're talking about the the, the bucket overflowing, the stress bucket or or whatever, or the trauma. Look, we do everything right. We we train a lot, try not to drink too much, all those sort of things, and we talk to people, and and we're a pretty tight unit. So we just do our best, and we and we keep going. And there's a motivation to get the job done, and that's not at the detriment of our health, but it's it's just we're a motivated bunch of people. And to get into the unit in the first place, you've got to prove yourself, and you know you don't want to let the people down um, that are you know working around you. So you you keep turning up and. Um, our, our sick leave is is minimal, so I'll, I'll put it that way. So we deal with some very stressful stuff, but we just keep teeing up and and uh, we we've we've got one of the best sort of sick leave records, in, you know, out of in the police force. So yeah, well, listen, thank you for the in, in, incredible work and thank you for your service. Thanks, Adam. That was Sergeant Josh Lyle on a harrowing day at work. In a moment, we return to the New South Wales Police Academy at Goulburn. Now, a message from our sponsor. Police Bank is offering up to $4,000 cash back with any new refinance. Simply refinance your existing owner-occupied or investment home loan of $300,000 or more from another financial institution to qualify. This offer is available to applicants who apply and are approved up until the 3rd of May 2023. Eligibility criteria applies. Please see the terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. This segment is sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Welcome back to the New South Wales Police Academy. Class 357 is now well into the final countdown to attestation. It's been a challenge emotionally and physically for the recruits. When it all gets too much, there's a certain senior sergeant they turn to who can help them through. The Session 2 coordinator, Lisa Corby. My name is Lisa Corby and I'm a senior sergeant. I've been in the police since 99, so about almost 24 years coming up this September, and I'm the Session 2 coordinator. So what does the Session 2 coordinator do? So I'd like to coin myself as the pretty much the mum of the students. I look after their day-to-day needs when it comes to their academic studies, making sure that when they come in to the academy, they know what to expect, what it's going to look like, organise the presenters to come and talk to them, to give them how their next 16 weeks will look, catch up their lessons that they miss and make sure that any life things that happen that go on with them 
I can give them some assistance with that as well. We've met Tony Wade, the, the drill sergeant, mm-hmm. and I like to call him the truth in the truth, integrity and knowledge motto. But yours is a different role. Slightly, there's a more humanistic role on your side, I guess. D- definitely, definitely. So we need, we need that that drill role, that protocol role that Tony delivers and, and delivers in his unique, beautiful way that he does. But then they also need that other side of discipline, yes, but also then that learning and caring that comes with being a police officer too and then getting the knowledge that they need to be a police officer as well. And that's, I guess, where my part comes in with the academic studies that they need to do to know what they can enforce and how to do it. And this is an emotional time for these recruits. Some of them haven't been away from home before. For many, it's a whole new environment. Some have come from the military. They're quite familiar with rank structure and and discipline and so forth. But I guess you've got to have a a fairly empathetic view, empathetic approach to them. And I certainly do. They know from day one with me that I will be firm but fair with them. So they know they can come to me. I want them to be able to come to me because I don't want the students making rash decisions in the middle of the night going, this is not for me because I've had a bad day. So I want them to be able to come and talk to me. But they also know that I'm a senior sergeant and that there's an expectation of a certain level of respect that comes with that. Yeah, I I am the more, the softer side, but they certainly know that uh, don't go too far that way. <laughs> what's, what's that saying? Don't take my uh, my kindness as weakness. <laughs> and also you can be someone that they can turn to. You mentioned before there's a feature on your desk. <laughs> there is a feature. There's always a tissue box on my desk. So there, there doesn't go a time in the 16 weeks that there won't be tears of some description because um, there's a lot of stress involved. They invest a lot of time and money to do this and there's usually a lot of passion in wanting to become a, a police officer. And with that sometimes comes disappointment that they think they may not be able to make it. Exam time is a, is a good one around that where exam results come out and there's obviously a lot of pressure around that. So there's, the tissues get a pretty good workout around that sort of time. People will get to the point where they just can't go on, that they feel that it's too tough, it wasn't what they thought it was. How do you approach that question? do certainly get that, and I usually get that quite early on in the piece, um, usually within the first sort of three, four weeks of their session two training where they see that maybe this isn't for me. I tend to try and talk them around why, why that decision is. Is it because you're missing home? Is it because they've never touched a firearm before? So I talk to them around why they think they don't want to be here, and if that's just a momentary decision, if it's something that have a think about it, come see me in a week's time or whether it's a then and there look I've already packed my bags Um, and and I get both and some just need a little bit of time some are just too hard on themselves and they're just being their own worst critic and they will make good cops (laughs) I can see you take it personally when one of these students does leave oh I don't like it when they go no (laughs) no I do well it is because if I can see that they're going to be a good cop then we want to keep them of course we do However, I will never make someone stay because you can't, you can't make someone do this as a job. Your role is important because it bridges from Tony Wade, drill sergeant, to the Charles Sturt University side of things. So, this, of course, this is an academy and a university. So that's one of your roles. Yes, that's right. And part of that academic is joining the police and university altogether to deliver their content in a university-level information, but delivered at the police academy. So, yeah, my role is around those academic subjects. 
And what will they be doing here? Yeah, so in their session two subjects, they do street offences and, and police powers around those street offences. They look a bit further into traffic, motor vehicle collisions, PCA offences, things like that, uh, sexually motivated crime and uh, investigative practice, so how to do interviewing, putting together a brief of evidence, and very last topic that they do, which is probably the biggest one they study along the whole thing, is domestic violence. And that's a, a very heavy topic that we save right to the end, just before they attest. And the average general duties officer will spend, I think, 40 to 60% of their time on domestic violence. It's a very sensitive area that requires... I guess, some maturity and things like that? Oh, definitely, definitely. We certainly see, well, obviously, our students, they come from all parts of the world. They could have been victims of domestic violence or witness to that in their own world before coming here. It is a heavy topic, and it's heavy legislatively, because obviously we've got a lot of things we need to cover around specifically DV. Tony Wade talks about the fact that Okay, the the learning curve is steep here, but operationally it's vertical. How do you prepare them on your side of the fence for what they're going to... Because there's so much legislation that they could do something quite innocently wrong and and have years of of problems. So how do you you prepare them for the reality of what's out there? Yeah, I would think that as far as knowing their legislation, they come out of here probably knowing it far better than in three or four years' time because they're learning it, they're, they're examined on it, they will be able to quote you numbers like nothing else. Me, a 20-odd-year cop, I, I can't quote the numbers like they can. Um, <laughs> so, But then it's putting that into practice. And I guess I try and prepare them in telling them that this is only the start of their journey here and that they're going to be with someone else, particularly in those first six or eight weeks, they will be with two other constables when they're working and that you're still learning and it's okay to still learn but I guess teaching them that doing the right thing for the right reasons is is the key and being honest about what you do. Because your path to policing was not direct. You had an academic career before this. How did you end up in the police? Yeah, random, random you should ask. I never wanted to be a cop. That wasn't my lifelong dream. I actually wanted to be a drafts person. <laughs> randomly but ended up going to university doing a bachelor of social sciences started doing psychology and didn't like it but did criminology and sociology and part way through my criminology journey we were doing a lot of policing subjects actually there was police teaching it there was police in the course and I had this epiphany midway through going oh I think I might want to be a cop so finished my university degree yeah end of 98 and the beginning of 99 is when I came to the academy so we're about six weeks away from attestation with this group. How are they going? Yeah, they seem to be going all right. So the current class, we have two coordinators. We have two versions of me. I've got the baby class. My current class is 358, and they've just gone into week three of their 16-week journey. The class that's just getting much closer to attesting, they're, they're heading into some final exams soon, so nerve time will come back in for them. <laughs> so... Your class currently is at the uh, the tissue box stage. Yeah, they've been very good so far, though. <laughs> Touch wood. I haven't actually had to crack the tissues out at all. 
So, which is very rare for getting to week three and not having to do that. Something's wrong. Because resilience is a key attribute you're trying to build here, both academically, both uh, you know, in the face of the public and so forth, and under pretty difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, definitely. And I think over the last couple of years, obviously it's been a significantly different environment down here where they were locked in, so to speak. They couldn't go home on weekends. They were here 24-7, lived and breathed everything academy. And people miss family and people miss kids and... That's okay. These last couple of classes have actually been able to go home on the weekends and spend time with their family, and that's making a big difference with being able to cope. You still need to have all of that in your world, and it's we try and teach that in their resilience training is exactly that. Even when you get out there, you still need your family. You still need your friends. You need things not all cop. Because there will be bad days. That, that's for sure. This this job, it's not a, it, they call it the job, but it's a calling. Mm. And I guess in your career, was there that bad day where you fell back on your training that you learned here? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Plenty of times, plenty of jobs. And even not just your weapons training, because obviously your weapons training is, is pinnacle to your, your physical safety, but that other parts that go along with that, because it's not just about weapons. I'm a weapons trainer too, but there's an awful lot more around that that you learn here uh, how to then deal with certain circumstances out there, how to deal with people, communication, that sort of thing, which is clearly the key. So what advice would you give to young people who listen to this, well, older people as well who might want to join them? What advice would you give them about what's required by the academy, but also what the academy offers in the way of support? Yeah, what I would say is actually give it a go. Don't be frightened, I guess, is something to consider. And go in with an open mind would definitely be what I would what I would recommend. Be prepared for discipline. Be prepared for someone to say, make sure your room is tidy. Be prepared to be away from home. Obviously, we get the whole raft of ages come through, know how to make a bed. What you're really saying is be prepared for Mr Wade. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> You'll love that. Thanks, Lisa. This segment was sponsored by Charles Sturt University providing education for police and law enforcement. That's all from inside the New South Wales Police Force, brought to you by Police Bank. Next week, we're back to the Mac with a high-stakes operation off the coast of New South Wales. Next one. Next one. Go. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, search Police Bank Inside New South Wales Police. Alternatively, speak to one of the Police Bank team on 131 728. Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast is produced by Piccolo Podcasts and Media Productions. Host Adam Shan, producers Andrew Mensel and Courtney Besgrove. For New South Wales Police, Amy Hosking, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Sergeant Megan Knight and Senior Constable Ash Bold. Original music by Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band.